0: Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains where we talk about your adventure travels from backpacking to expeditions. I'm your host Chris and today we welcome Lucy Shepard. In the last decade she has done incredible expeditions from mountaineering to the arctic to the jungle and in this episode we dive into a bit more about mindset, documenting, different jungle tips, uh, anecdotes from Tajikistan and skiing on the Norwegian-Russian border. I really hope you enjoy it. But what I really want to do is just get straight into the interview. If you enjoy it, please follow. Please consider sharing this with a friend. And let's get into the interview. So hello, Lucy. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here.
0: Perfect. Goodo. I'm glad you're on it. I really appreciate your time. So for those of you who don't know, let me try and put an incredible decade into a paragraph. Lucy is an expedition leader with an incredible resume of journeys, starting in Svalbard at 18, Lucy's highlights, so not even all of what she has achieved. See her hiking in the Hardanger region of Norway and the Finsmark Vida Plateau in the Arctic Circle, graduating university and diving straight into the Amazon rainforest, mountaineering in Argentina and Tajikistan, scaling Denali and Makalu. Solo hiking in Picos de Europa, Spain, leading a team in the Patagonia expedition race and skiing the Norwegian-Russian border alongside the expeditions to Greenland. Lucy has also been to the High Sierra Mountains and to the Canuka Mountains in Guyana, which I'm happy to say we're going to go into more depth in two separate episodes. But despite this, Lucy is incredibly modest and humble. She was made a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society at just 23 and is on the Council for the Scientific Exploration Society. And when she's not doing these wonderful things, Lucy could be found providing talks and appearing on Dove skincare adverts. (laughs) So, Lucy, thank you very much for your time today. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for having me. You've done your research. (laughs) You know me more than me, I think.
0: No, not possible. (laughs) Not possible. But starting at the beginning, as an only child playing outdoors for hours on end, were your friends happy to join in and how often were you convincing them to keep exploring further?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, now, I was always the adventurous kid, like wanting to climb the trees, wanting to climb ropes. Um, and I had one very good friend, or I still do have one very good friend, a uh, boy called Harry, who was um, one year younger than me. And I, being an only child, I would really have to rely on people coming over or me going to see them and things like that. So I would often drag him over and we'd play outside for the whole day and never you know like you like we used to do you know spend the whole lunch time out have lunchtime in the trees and then not be back until sunset um and then I, I remember getting a bit older when I was a teenager and trying to sort of feel I felt like I was growing up a little bit too fast because I felt like at the time I did want to do all the stuff that teenagers do but at the same time I was I had this real fear and anxiety that oh god I am actually losing the thing that I thought made me me so if, if I lose that then am I which um cliche and things but I was very much aware that that was where I was happiest and that's who I was so I did try and hang on to it for a bit and you know when you have um a rainy day at school and you're not meant to the PE sessions are inside that was always my real real bit where I would thrive I suppose when I was a teenager because that was the bit where I could be like let it out and the ropes would come out and the boys would do their thing and try and climb up the ropes and that was where I could go and Show up the boys and remember that childhood spark that I had in me and, um, you know, prove everyone wrong. Because I was always quite shy at school. I wasn't I wasn't my real self. I was always hiding behind, uh, you know, trying to fit in and things like that. But it was more when I was, I came home when I was outside. We used to go on holidays to Scotland. And that was when I really found myself. And I think as I grew older, I started to realise if that's where I'm most happiest then I need to look out for things where I can do that more and more. Um, and then, so when I was seventeen, I was lucky enough to see the advert that later on took me first ever expedition. So I never knew that expeditions even existed. Still, I was, I would read the books of Shackleton and things like that, but I didn't think that people still went on expeditions. So Shack that uh, that and uh, I have to say Bear grills was a was a, <laughs> a big realization that the world was there for my taking, and I really felt like. Um, I needed to go everywhere in the world in order to feel alive and so I think seeing all those places on the TV and um, going no, I want to go to all those places that was where it really started. I sort of could see a path for myself starting to um, arise. (laughs)
0: Perfect well moving to present day you've done a heck of a lot so I'm really fascinated by your eclectic collection of expeditions for you how do the arctic mountains compare to the unexplored jungle?
1: Um, yeah, no, I love doing everything. Um, as part of, I guess, when I was a kid, like loving all all environments. I think, and I was very keen from early on. Even though I fell in love with the Arctic, I wanted to learn how to mountaineer. I wanted to do high altitude. I wanted to go to the jungle. Um, the Arctic for me, I for the most part, I consider the Arctic a, a massive. Uh, it can be very much a holiday as long as you're not in the sea ice or anything like that. But if you're on the plateaus and things. I feel that you can switch off you can um, cross-country skiing is such a wonderful motion and you just you get into this rhythm and this pattern and it works the whole body but in such a sort of relaxing way and you can really get outside get outside of yourself and get perspective um and it's not until the evenings when you stop and you have to look after yourself keep warm and things like that where you have to be more switched on um in the mountains you have to be switched on constantly um but it's much more of a, a vulnerable feeling of the the greatness around you like the avalanches and crevasses. So you're you're always listening out for every small thing. Um you're always looking at the sky for the storms incoming. Um and you're always having to think, you know, should we turn around, should we not? So it's taxing as hell as man especially at altitude. And I've mean Altitude just takes it out of you every single bit of it. Like you sometimes don't realise it until you come home and you um go to sleep and you sleep it's because your body is so full of oxygen suddenly you realize just how exhausting it is and then the jungle um it's almost like the opposite of mountains but it's those the small things. so every time you sit down you've got to check it <laughs> you know you've got to be alert of what's next you've got to, your senses become alive because you, you subconsciously realize that you're watching everywhere you put your hands but you don't even know it you're doing it it becomes an automatic thing so you start going to hold something you don't even see it but your body knows that it's a spiky poisonous tree and it, you start to become in tune with nature much more in the jungle and um no it's fascinating no. so they're all very very different um
0: that's cool <laughs> And something john gupta mentioned on the episode we did with him climbing denali and it seems obvious and yet i just hadn't thought about it as something he mentioned i didn't pick him up on it but he was talking about how when a cloud is a bit like a dome over a summit, you know it's windy. Yeah. And then, like you said just then, you're looking at the skies. Is reading clouds a thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're always uh, looking at the clouds and um, you're always, always looking up at the summit, looking at how the, what the winds are doing, and what the clouds are doing, because um, there, there's a whole other climate thing going on at the summit. Um, so, yeah, constantly, constantly paying attention, always.
0: That's good to know, because obviously, uh, as far as I've looked out for it, it's, you know, it, is it a dark cloud or a light cloud? <laughs> so, so yeah, I had no idea. That's interesting to know. So on Jason Fox's podcast, he talks about uh, just how vital each tiny bit of admin is in the jungle. There's a lot of discussion on how even just not cleaning between your toes can lead to infection and how everything from bacteria to animals is just designed to try and kill you. So what routines do you have that keep you on top of it?
1: That's definitely right. Like everything is trying to kill you or everything is a defense mechanism because yes. everything survive. survive um, and then you have to quickly figure out your defense mechanism. <laughs> uh, what, what techniques admin-wise? Um, well, you have, I'm sure you've heard of the wet and dry routine. So uh, in the day you wear your wet clothes, um, whether they're wet because of the rain, the, you know, the Amazon or the jungle. Um, or they're wet from going through the swamps, or they're wet from s- simply sweat. I mean, you you become sweaty within 30 seconds of starting moving. Um, so you have your wet clothes, and then as soon as you get to where you're going to camp, you set everything out, and then you uh, you get your hammocks up. And then you take your dry clothes, you strip off into the stream, the river. so You always camp try try and camp near some sort of water source, even if it's a tiny puddle. You have to you have to bath in some way every night, um, and then you strip off you. Clean your wet clothes, um, and then you get into dry clothes for the night time, which means that you're warmer. But that also means in the morning you have to get into your wet clothes, and that's, that's a nasty feeling every morning. Um, what other routines have we got? Um, always making sure that when you're getting into your hammock, nothing is in there because creepy crawlies and things like that. Putting vaseline on your so where the hammock goes onto the trees is a good tip um, because bullet ants or at, or fire and things like that the vaseline will stop them from coming coming in to get you
0: <laughs> i like that
1: yeah so there's lots of things and and not stepping on oh before before you get out of your hammock um at night for a wee or just in the morning use your torch always of course uh, to check the ground especially where i was um because there's these snakes that come and follow you and they've been known to be waiting underneath your hammock uh and they wait for you to get out and they strike just as you're getting out you gotta look. You gotta look under there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pricks. <laughs> um, so keeping on top of uh, keeping on the topic of personal admin and preparation for someone who climbs Mont Blanc simply for practice, what sort of mental and physical preparation do you put into your expeditions? Um.
1: Yeah. So a lot. I find a lot when I have an expedition coming up, and it's never I never leave it that unless it's an absolute massive one it's usually around six months (coughs) six to you know three months or so um and then i spend all the time thinking about it constantly i start i start looking at the route i visualize everything i visualize each day if i can how that's going to pan out so you start mapping that out in your head um you start considering okay this is why it's going to be hard or scary this is where i'm going to struggle and every night when you're feeling most vulnerable before you go to bed you start thinking how that's going to feel and getting ready for that um but then also looking forward to that feeling of reward and that's why you do it that's you know that that keeps you going um and then physically well you always keep a baseline of fitness so, so otherwise it would just be really hard to keep getting back but um when there's about three months to go for especially big mountain expeditions you start really ramping it up uh going to the scotland or wales or um start with every weekend and then to the Alps to get a bit of altitude um always heavy bags I'm a big fan of bags um because for the reason whenever I go on expeditions my bag is always so much heavier than anyone <laughs> um yeah, so like of camera it. kit <laughs> camera kit and just safety. yeah and I don't know there's always so much food <laughs> so much of everything um and then yeah just training on long days and getting I think over the years the mental side of things starts to get easier um and you know that you can because you've done it before you know you can pull a 24-hour day or something you just because your your memory remembers that and you just know you can do it so things get easier and easier but going into that sort of pain threshold in the mountains beforehand to um really helps, and then sort of tapering it off and then just starting to really look forward to it as well really, really perfect really helped
0: <laughs> perfect So you mentioned loving going to remote areas, and I think a lot of travellers and listeners can relate. So that feeling of freedom is rarely found surrounded by others. Your expeditions, though, aren't just cheeky holidays to Hawaii for the surf. There's a lot more challenge to these remote areas. So I'm interested to know for you, what's the balance in uh, sort of between achievement and escapism when doing these expeditions?
1: another good question (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think you've hit the nail on the head it really is about both of those things um, for me like I love escaping into a world where I feel very privileged to be there I feel like because they're not easy to get to in terms of you know it does take a lot of preparation in terms of figuring it out figuring the logistics out Um, you know I wouldn't a lot of the places I've been to I didn't know they existed before I went so that gives me a real Sort of willing for myself to try and get there because you know, who knew this amazing place that I'm standing here existed until a few months ago? Yeah, um, I, I really find that when you escape from the civilization, um, and you really push your own boundaries, um, and get the achievement, like you say, and feel uncomfortable and do things that you really your body doesn't want to do, I feel like that's when you get the most out of your day to day life, your normal life. I love going on these things. As just to be there, but also to then look forward to coming back um, and living life in the UK. Because I love feeling like I'm coming home, and that just gives it a whole. It gives you a whole new perspective and makes you very thankful for your friends, your family, and what you have. And just, it gives me a boost of energy to just keep going and keep pushing on. So that's why I'm never very good at um, going planning a massive, massive, massive expedition that takes years to plan and fundraising for years because I have to I have to top it up so frequently and I think you can do that just by going somewhere remote, even if it's the UK and just pushing yourself hard.
0: For sure. So so for you it's not about simultaneously doing both. It's it's going out of there for the escapism and returning for the achievement. Yeah. There's one then the other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I mean, you your mini achievements, don't you, when you
0: yeah.
1: yeah. And then every time you reach the top of a peak or something and you feel you feel pride with yourself and your team.
0: Or go for a wee and you don't get bitten by a snake
1: (laughs) Well, Sometimes you do have those moments
0: (laughs) (laughs) The little things (laughs) So on this podcast we typically interview people about their adventure trips and run through the itinerary So let's start with something more serious first and then I'll ask a second one a bit later So potentially this will also be a public service announcement But briefly talk to us about your trip to Tajikistan
1: Oh, yeah. Tajikistan. Uh, So I went to Tajikistan in uh, 2018. Yeah. 2018, the summer of 2018. I hadn't heard much of Tajikistan. It's near Pakistan. It's near China, uh, Kyrgyzstan.
0: North Um, of Afghanistan, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, just on the border.
1: Yeah. uh, It's a landlocked country. Um, And it was meant to be four of us originally. uh, uh, Three close friends of mine. But at the last minute, two guys, two of them pulled out. And that left myself and my boyfriend and climbing partner Tim. And we had quite a serious conversation, you know, shall we? Is it safe for us to continue? It's just a just a two, it's a duo. And we thought about it and we looked at the route and we looked at everything we could online. There's not much on Tajikistan, there's no books or anything like that. So I really just read what we and talked to people who've been there before um, to get some sort of idea. And we came to the conclusion, yeah, we, we can do this. It's nothing we haven't dealt with before. Um, And then... To get to the mountain, so the, the mountain season is very short. Uh, it's about it's about a month, um, and about 100 climbers climb it uh, climb these peaks every year. There's two peaks, um, Ismoil simoni and uh, Koshneshka, and they're both about 7,000 meters. And to get to the mountain, you have to get a helicopter. And there's sort of there's a couple of helico- helicopters at the start of the season and a couple of helicopters at the end of the season. And um, we there was. Myself and Tim as the two Brits, and there was one other Brit um, among the whole hundred people. The rest were Russians, and there there were some Estonians who could speak uh, English as well, who we made friends with. And so we get the helicopter to the so-called base camp, and uh, this is where I, I well, the Tajiks won't be happy for me saying, but it's not a base camp. I, I mean, <laughs> it was it was like being dropped off on Mars. We were left to our own devices for a few days before any of the base camp I say keep doing that base camp managers. Um,
0: for those listening, there's a lot of air quotes going on right now.
1: Yeah, I'm <laughs> not saying much for that. So, <laughs>
0: um,
1: so we were left to our own devices and just didn't feel right. The organization and things wasn't there, um, which is fine normally because um, if I'm going somewhere remote, I don't want help. But we were very much told this is a base camp, almost like uh, a mini sort of um, every space camp of it. Nowhere near. So we're, we're all trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to get our tents and things. Um, and I won't go too much into it, but the climbing went on for about a month and the mountain is falling apart. I don't know if it had been like that for the years before, but it really felt like something was up with the environment, the climate, or we just no one had told us the right thing before. So there were rock, sli- rock, um, rock fall and landslides that you'd never believe before you get to the snow line there was just every step would cause some sort of boulder to fall and you were dodging boulders which is just deadly and you go to sleep with that noise of rocks just falling um and then you got to this sort of frozen waterfall that was about 45 degrees that you have to ice climb up there's nothing about that (laughs) online so there's a lot of people turning up with not many mountaineering skills not much mountaineering skills suddenly forced to do ice climbing for the first time. And there's no protection or anything like that. Um, And you have to climb this waterfall before a certain time every every day um, because then there's a sudden landslide. But because it's in a funnel. And so you climb that. And then we were told there's these fixed lines, um, like there are on Denali. So fixed lines are when um, some uh, professional people go up uh, or paid people go up and put some anchors in and put some ropes so that the climbers can uh, clip in and ascend up safely, so if they fall, they get caught, and then they can descend down safely as well. Um, first of all, the people doing this <laughs> were, were the Russian guides. They weren't guides, so I think that was another thing of... Um, to be careful, I think. <laughs> but uh, some people Some of those Russian guides turned out not knowing how to put a crampon on, or, not, or turning out without crampons. So that kind of says... says and we get to these, they were
0: hill guides. <laughs> they,
1: I don't even know what they <laughs> We get to these um, fixed lines and I'm not kidding you, but um, this rope, I can't even call it rope, it was garden twine. So you wouldn't even tie your car roof rack to it. It was just, you, it would snap. you know. And this was expected to have 100 people abseiling and ascending down it. Um, but there was nothing else. And it was fixed with one anchor for about, 200, 250 meters with one little anchor, and then that was it. And if this had, it didn't, but if this had snapped, uh, the consequences would be you falling into a Bergson uh, glacier at the bottom uh, to death. <laughs> it was one of those things where at one point we did have to use it, um, which was horrible, but you just have to go for it. And we did this whole month of going up and down these things, and we got back to the base camp few days before the helicopter was about to come and we thought wow you know isn't it a miracle nothing bad happened uh, you constantly had this feeling that something bad was going to happen the whole time and we were meant to get the flight out on the 12th of august that was always what we planned and there was one other helicopter going out on the 11th of august and suddenly we were picked. lucy tim you go out on the 11th of august we we're like okay great so let's get get out of here quickly we got out, and we had this horrendous helicopter ride where the helicopter was was, was flying so, so close to the glacier. Um, and Tim and I kept, we were holding hands, and we kept looking at each other, thinking, it's not good, not saying anything, but just occasionally squeezing each other's hands. And then we got back safely, and we thought, again, who that was a close one. And then the next day, um, we find out that the helicopter had um, probably had a similar flight. But hadn't been so good. It had um, crashed and killed five people, and so that was like a sort of rude awakening of, you know, this place is not safe. There were so many stories where even I'm surprised not more people died on the mountain. To be honest, it was was unsafe place and unsafely done. So I wouldn't recommend at the moment (laughs) people going and climbing in Tajikistan right now. I think Kyrgyzstan, go for Kyrgyzstan. It's a much different, much different ball game, Um, a much better run, but. But
0: now, yeah, brings back a bad feeling of all the petty. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet, and it's actually it's probably a good segue to move on to uh, a quote which uh, we we both know of already, but but you mentioned it in our in our pre podcast chat, which is uh you said getting to the top is optional, but getting down is mandatory, yeah. and uh. So this is something, like I so said, we discussed previously, and you mentioned some pretty intense moments on other podcasts from cerebral edema in Argentina to, uh, like like we just discussed, a mountain falling apart in Tajikistan. How do you manage fear and negativity when these events happen?
1: Um, I always remember I'm the one that's decided to go there. No, i put... <laughs> <laughs> um, and... You know, I know the risks, and as long as I think that's why I was annoyed at Tajikistan um, because I do do my research and I I do check it out, and it felt all very um, I I felt lied to. Everything I'd read was not this. Mm. Uh, You know, there was no mention of a massive crevasse field that was you know people every step were falling to their waist, Um, and maybe that was just the climate and um, the whole mountain changing, maybe. But, yeah, I think reminding yourself that you're there and, you know, as long as you surround yourself with a good team, talk things through, uh, if you you have got a bad feeling, try and get out of it um, because that's normally right, from my experience. Um, And, I mean, I've had some some moments. Actually, I was thinking the last time I felt, oh, God, I'm going to die was actually... (laughs) Uh, just after I crossed the Kanukis on the last expedition, I was in a very, very small plane to get back to the city. And there was a storm that came in and it was raining like mad and there was uh, clouds everywhere and we were going close to the mountain and with this small plane was jumping up and jumping up and I was thinking, oh, damn it, <laughs> it's such a shame I'm going to die now. <laughs> i very much accepting, you know, this I have this is the life you've chosen so you have to accept it to an element if there's nothing you can do you've got to put your hands up and just go with it but if there is something you can do then do it
0: (laughs) yeah for sure so as someone who from a young age identifies that you love adventure like we've already established went on to study tv and film studies and then have moved on again to work in the industry and on expeditions i really admire your focus and tenacity really to, to keep cracking on you are always documenting your trips and speaking to camera and with such a focus as of late on mental health and headspace I was wondering and interested to know what your thoughts are on the importance of journaling and getting outdoors.
1: Um, It's everything I think people are starting to realize that with the lockdown right now Um, Mm. how we value sunlight and nature and birds and it's in our dna you know it's a primal thing and i think some people have lost it but it doesn't take long to tap into it again um i think we could every single person would do better to go spend more hours outside or top it up for a whole weekend sleeping outdoors is something that you know we we're meant to do you may not sleep very well but you will feel a million times better the next day just for doing it um it clears your head it makes you realize that your worries and your the things that you're worried about in the future don't matter because you're living in the present um it makes you realize that family love and what you can do like yourself and what you can already do you should be proud of and i think yeah i think everyone can get outside more um and just push themselves a little bit and go to go, walk outside when it's pissing down with rain Like it feels good, (laughs) good, but you will feel great when you come back indoors and you'll want to do it again. So, yeah, it makes you appreciate everything and things aren't so bad.
0: And in regards to the journaling, I I guess you feel the same way about that too.
1: Um, You mean when I'm journaling, when I'm out? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I find a big relief doing that because uh, it makes you vocalize. What you're worried about it makes you vocalise what you've done, um, and it's just like speaking to someone about your fears and your worries and your achievements. It makes everything better.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, an episode that was a time of release last um, last month, end of May, with Chloe Chapdelaine. She said that when she journals, whether good or bad she'll have a lot going through her head and it's like taking that out of your mind and that's now on the paper and, and you just feel a little, a little bit better so whether you're speaking to camera I guess that would be the same for you.
1: Yeah and sometimes you press record and you don't you have no idea what you're going to say <laughs> and it doesn't matter you just you just go with the silence to start with and then it will start coming out. Um, I had quite an odd experience in the kanukus after I'd finished had just come to the end and I switched on the camera to record and I didn't know what I was going to say at all, but I wanted to say, oh, I think we've done it. Um, and as soon as I started talking to the camera, um, I started crying, investing in tears with relief and the pride of everyone. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't start filming to do that. It was just, it was almost like talking to your future self.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so keeping on this for a moment, I often ask guests how they balance living in the moment with photographing, or in your case, documenting you are very authentic in your recordings and provide a truthful approach to the regions, I feel. However, going through your blog, I would say that when you document, you seem to be living in the moment while recording, which would kind of make sense with that anecdote just then. So would you say this is the case or are you secretly struggling to balance the two?
1: No, I never struggle. I know what people say when they say, I don't want to you know, live the, live life through a lens, but I never feel like that. Mm-hmm. I. I... I love capturing memory. I'm still living it at the time, um, but yeah, I think they comp- when I'm doing it, I'm not doing it where I'm, you know, maybe because I'm not doing it in a, you know, very arty thing, thinking about exactly the shot. I'm doing it to remember it, record it um, at the same time as living it because I'm loving. It. Sometimes I'm, I'm often with a small camera, and I'm not even looking, so I'm just got it in my hand pointing a lot of the time because I want to have both.
0: for sure it's the nice thing about documenting I suppose isn't it which is you don't have to think too much and you kind of can be present whilst capturing it just won't be you know Renee roaming on Instagram with a beautiful shot (laughs) with the right filter
1: (laughs) I grew up with a camera in my hand so it's become very much a a thing that I do and I feel empty if I can't can't document it in some way and it's it's mainly for myself always Um, and if if something else turns out of it great
0: Perfect. So labeling yourself the unlikely adventurer, I was interested to know how do you manage when others accidentally or not place their limitations on you by telling you that you can't do something or an expedition is too dangerous?
1: Um, that definitely happened a lot um, a lot more a few years ago. Um, mm. I would have to fight through and I would sometimes um, find that it would weigh a lot on my shoulders and sometimes it would cause me to doubt myself even more So sometimes when you're going with people who are a lot better and you know it just happens you have to get better by going with people who are better mm. and as long as the balance isn't too much so as long as they're not way 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 ahead of you um, then it's fine but sometimes if you do go with people who are uh, miles ahead then that can be that can prove be difficult because it's so much easier it's called lead, a leader's legs. so if you're in the front um, even if you're finding it just as hard as the person behind, you feel a million times better, so you will go faster. I mean, everyone does it. Like, if I do it and I'm in the front, and there's people finding it harder, you're going to find it easier. Right? <laughs> and if you're at the back, it'll just it wears on you. Um, so I think getting over and putting myself in situations where I was the worst a lot of times, you get used to it, um, and then and then eventually you're not the worst, and then you start to, you start going up the ranks, and just. I think not allowing yourself to uh, let egos go in the way, not allowing yourself to doubt, understand where you are and understand where you're going, and know your limitations early on, and be very much in your head and not think about what other people think of you or how to be better, you know, how can you better yourself, not how can you be better than them, and then eventually you will, you will find your way up. (laughs)
0: Yeah and that first part you mentioned reminded me of a quote I I, I just literally saw I, we've all seen it before but literally before we got onto this call I was just scrolling through and saw it which was to paraphrase otherwise I'll butcher it uh, if you put in enough work you put in the late nights you put in xyz you will get so good that people will call you an overnight success
1: <laughs> yeah definitely it's and so perhaps
0: that's a bit like, you know, you're putting in all that grind to do expedition after expedition, and eventually people go, oh, Lucy, yeah, she's brilliant.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> suddenly she's so talented. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, no, I think it's um, it's a 10 million, 10 million hour thing, is it? Where uh, if you put in 10 million hours, then eventually you'll be good at something. Like 10, <laughs> 10, no, 10 million, 10,000, sorry. Not
0: that many. Yeah, 10 yeah million. 10 million's a lot. <laughs> So you'll be 100 or... Like, yeah, I can't thats yeah. quickly, but that's a long time. But yeah. <laughs> um, And it kind of on the topic of limitations too, I like how you swore in 2014 after a close encounter with a jaguar that you would never go back to the jungle. But here we are recording and you've just completed a 2020 return trip to the jungle. So what changed for you?
1: Yeah, no, I had a really a sketchy mo sketchy moment where um Jaguar was well I thought it was stalking me uh, when I was in my hammock one late at night um in the in the Amazon jungle. It wasn't there was an armadillo underneath my hammock and it was going for that but I didn't know that. For hours there was Jaguar noise going <laughs> Which just made me, as you can imagine, feel very, very petrified and like prey and I was too afraid to see anything else. Um, and I get, got back from that exhibition feeling very much like, oh, God, the jungle, I thought it was going to be for me, but no, no, that was too much. Um, I'll stick with the, with the cold places and stuff. But it doesn't have that. It's not as claustrophobic. And then last year, um, towards the end of last year, I started to get into this feeling that um, even though I was doing multiple, multiple exhibitions that were all very challenging um, consistently, there was something missing there was something that wasn't quite um making me feel like I used to when I was younger going on expeditions where I had no idea how I was going to cope feeling that you know the sleepless nights and that sickness feeling before you get the plane uh, on and so I thought well that's it I've got to go back to the jungle uh, because that taste terrifies me still and so yeah that's that's when I started to think how do I face my feels and because I really wanted to like the jungle uh, and I didn't so I thought the the only way to do that is to is to go back and get used to it and go in the deep end and I do like the jungle now. I have to say it worked. So, I was
0: going to say how 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 does your opinion differ now?
1: No, it's right. Face your fear. Like um, in the end we saw three jaguars um, and none of those felt. I didn't. Well, there was one that felt a bit of a threat, but then there was suddenly much bigger fish fish to fry uh, because there were snakes all over the place. Suddenly after that after we knew there was a Jaguar nearby. Um and you know, there's so much worse so many more worse things of the jungle <laughs> which, you know, aren't quite they're still absolutely terrifying, but um Jaguars I think keep to themselves after seeing so many.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And actually I, I think I know the anecdote you're on about with the snakes, but let's save that for the Kanuka Mountains episode, I think. So if anyone listening, then simply wait until July and that's when we're going to be chatting about the Kanuka Mountains. So yeah, there you are. <laughs> um, so something that did take my interest when you were in the Kanuka Mountains was your anecdote of the native team though that, that accompanied you and how they were losing you in the jungle. So if, I, I, I think of it as their jungle, but <laughs> they were losing you nonetheless. And I'm fascinated to know uh, as a novice to map reading How do you actually go about correcting yourself when you're in a completely new to you territory?
1: Well, even though it was their jungle, they'd never done any of this before. So it was their dream to do this crossing um, as well as it was mine. You know, I thought it was beautiful. I was only meant to go into it in the next, in the Kanuku episode, but I was only meant to go with two of them. And then in the end, I took five of them because five of them had this dream of doing it. And I thought it was great that, um, this adventure, this love for adventure, brought us all together for so this all common goal to do um, this crossing. Um, and so, yeah, we. Uh, in a couple, I thought they were very confident, very, very full of themselves. Like, we know you know. Let's do this. Let's do that. So, the first, I, had done a lot of preparation and research as much as I could with the map. But for the first few days, I thought, i you know, they're enjoying this so much. I'll, they say this guy's the map guy. I'll let, I'll let him go and read the map and stuff. But I put it in their hands and then, um, yeah, later on, a couple of days in, I was like, mm, Dad, I think we're going the wrong way. <laughs> sure <laughs> enough, in the wrong direction and uh, poor guy had been reading the compass and the map wrong. Um, <laughs> I talked it through and then I let him, sort of, him and I then then uh, did it together. Uh, if you get lost, I mean, in the jungle, uh, you do clipping. You clip each tree um, every metre or two metres which just basically means with your machete, you make a little mark. Um, and by making a sort of sharp mark on the tree, um, or it's usually little twigs, and make, pushing them over. Uh, for the untrained eye, it's quite hard to spot, but once you've sort of got into your jungle eyes, uh, when you see straight lines like that, you can start seeing a path. So if you do go wrong, always retrace your steps, and that's why you constantly do these clippings in, in a certain direction, so that when you look back, you can... See a path. If you haven't spent much time in the jungle, it's impossible to see. So to start with, if they would go a few meters in front of me, um, because it's so dense, then I would completely lose them, and go, I couldn't even follow where they were going. So, but by the end, you know, you you, you have the the eyes for it, and you can spot any even leaves on the uh, on the ground that where the footsteps have been. Um, so in the jungle, always retrace your steps, uh, and that's that's the best you can do. And occasionally, there are features, there are rivers and you occasionally you can see through the trees if you're in a mountainous area um, and then obviously if you're in the mountains again retrace your steps if you can um, otherwise use linear features and, uh, bearing. Um, yeah always always go back to your last point
0: <laughs> okay fascinating yeah I, I, I didn't know if you were doing some sort of wizardry with, with a map but it's almost comforting to me to know it's a bit more simpler than that
1: <laughs> yeah no, we I mean we had maps and we were using them but um you have to, yeah. You have to have. Uh, you make so much little progress in the in the jungle each day that the maps are only good for a sort of long uh, day by day, rather than every hour, or so, because you're making so little progress. You can't even see yourself.
0: Now, you mentioned in that as well, jungle eyes, and that reminded me of uh, another podcast I heard you on, where you mentioned that someone will be snake eyes so as someone whose only experience of snake eyes is in a ring of fire uh, and if you make eye contact with them you have to drink um not that i'm like that but that is my own experience uh could you clarify a bit more what what is snake eyes and is it a specific role that's assigned to one particular person or
1: um it tends to be a role or it will be um the the clipper in front um the person making the the, the, tr- the small trail but uh yeah i tend to assign someone um for that their sole purpose is to look scan the ground scan where you're putting uh, your sort of waistline and above um and you and me would find it much more i mean you get you get used to it but if we were just plonked in the jungle now like i said you have to get you have to get into it because mm. snakes camouflage is just incredible um and they're not only being snake eyes but they're also smelling so uh, they, sn- snakes have a very musky smell, and you do become in tune with it, and you can smell if a snake is nearby. Um, wow! In the jungle, the the snakes that the ones that live on the earth and in the leaves are, are horrible because yeah, you're just you're just going to walk right into it. <laughs> but often they don't want to be stood on, but sometimes they don't. They won't move fast enough.
0: Have you? It sounds silly, but have you stepped on a snake? And oh. <laughs> Cause my, my, my thoughts are that they'll immediately bite you, but then, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. They, they would immediately bite you unless they're a bigger one and they're a bit slower. Slower.
0: Okay. Cause um, I, I didn't know if they were like other animals, they might like for the most part freak out and, and just get away from you.
1: No, I think uh, spiders would, but, um, snakes, snakes usually attack, um, and the other thing you have to look out for as well as snake eyes while you're going along, um, is are lots of African bees and wasps nests that are everywhere. And you don't want to go near them because they get very wound up and they'll uh the idea is if they come at you and they start swarming you drop your bags and you run into a bush.
0: <laughs> really?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um. those going on as well. So you have to be careful not to disturb. So
0: you need your jungle eyes first, and then you get your snake eyes, but it's not just snakes you're looking out for.
1: Yeah, and then you, you realise it's not just snakes, it's also um, poisonous caterpillars that go, they, they hundreds of them in one little ball on a tree, all wiggling around, and you think, from the naked eye from a distance, you think it's a hole in a tree, but it's actually loads, and loads of poisonous caterpillars looking like a hole.
0: <laughs> it's The jungle sounds lovely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's fascinating, these things that you just don't know. Are there until you actually get there. It's just been good.
0: <laughs> So I wanted to keep, keep on that native team just for a moment. So on another podcast, the host talks about how your team in the Canuga Mountains for a, for a bit had some rivalry until they bonded over some fishing. Yeah. And uh, he referenced Tuckman's four stages of team development, which is yeah. um, uh, forming, storming, norming and performing there you yeah. are from memory i didn't even make a note for that uh, which basically describes that you get together you battle out a bit and then you get you start to work and then you really perform as a team and he seems to reference the storming and norming uh with the fishing but my experience of that method is that it takes much longer than that to actually start to norm and then perform so i was interested to know what was the team dynamic like after that bonding over spear fishing.
1: um I think it it was I mean it was very much a i look at I mean I can't do their accent but look at this. <laughs> <laughs> like he's um you know he's really proved himself now maybe this guy could be useful uh and then when we started going into the deep deeper jungle we realised just how capable this guy was and he is just awesome like he, he came out as quite the joker to start with but really he was so strong and. Um, we couldn't have done a lot of things without him, and then we would find little nuggets of information. Like, um, he'd killed two jaguars before, one of which he'd killed because it was a, he was on a hunting, he was hunting with his like some dog, wild dog, and his it was a jaguar attacked his dog and killed his dog. And so, he went up, he didn't have his bow and arrow with him, but he followed this jaguar up a tree. So, he climbed the tree. The jaguar, um, when it's up a tree, is a bit more vulnerable and followed it up. <laughs> and he started killing it with his with his machete, because uh, he was like, oh, I like my I like my dog. <laughs> and you know he, he he did eat it and you know fed his family with it and all that. But this guy had so many stories. Whereas um, I think before the rum had taken over, and he had acted a bit a bit foolish to start with, and the rivalry had come in, and we were you know thinking who is this guy, but he turned out to be an absolute legend.
0: So he really he really rode the the respect wave then.
1: Yeah, no, he was a proper proper bushman, as he put it.
0: And it's weird. You mentioned killing a jaguar, and I think everyone would rightfully get annoyed. But the moment you mention it was in Revenge of a Dog, uh, I have a feeling that uh, nearly every single listener will be like, yeah, good on him,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Things are different out there. And, um, yeah, no, it, it was, I think he was very angry that this thing killed a dog. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, for sure. Uh, I've got flashbacks to I Am Legend. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I just watched it because of the pandemic and everything. <laughs> but um, no, I, I kind of thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, no, I would probably go and try and attack something. for of
0: <laughs> At least until the emotion wore off, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like I've mentioned, we explore the Canook Mountains and the High Sierras in two separate episodes, which I'm really looking forward to. So... Having eliminated two more from the highlights list, it was really hard to pick a second trip to hear from you. But on the basis, uh, on the basis that the Finnsmarkvita plateau you've so well documented and blogged on your website, which I will put in the show notes for everyone listening, tell us about your skiing on the Norwegian-Russian border. Um, so when was
1: this? This was twenty. 18, I think this was 2018.
0: Oh, another one, another 2018
1: banger. Oh no, sorry, I think it was 2017. It's hard to remember. <laughs> um, January, so it was a. T- it's the time um, up in northern Norway, where uh, and Russia, where the uh, the daylight hours are between 1pm and 3pm. So <laughs> really, really dark. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was going up there um with my friend Liv, who I actually guide up uh, in the Finnmark with, and uh, our goal was to ski the Norwegian Russian border. Um, we would each have a dog each. And it, um, we set off, I mean, we ski mostly in darkness, which is a completely new thing. That was a new thing for me. Um, and we set off and it, kind of, it felt things Liv wasn't being as strong as I thought she would be. And she I thought was having to stop early. I mean, the conditions were really challenging that year. Um, but th- something just wasn't right. And after a few days in, she had to pull out, um, which I was very, very surprised at. And she was like, well, if you want to keep going, you can keep going. And so I decided, well, I've come all the way. I'll, I'll do this. I'll do this on my own. So I took the, snor- the strongest dog, which was a dog, Schner, which is a an husky and German shepherd cross. And since then, I've been on other expeditions with him. And he's an absolute, what a, if he Babe. was a- yeah if he was a if he was a man i would marry him <laughs> he's an absolute star he's the best working dog you can ever imagine but also the most affectionate so this was his first time on his own on the next edition and so yeah he's usually with the groups of the dogs outside but when i was going to bed at night he would cry because we would we would i would try and camp near a forest every time um so i was basically skiing on the on the norwegian russian border so i would you're able to see the Russian uh, they have these lookout posts and you have to be very very careful um because even though the border is is where you're skiing you have to be a certain amount of meters away from the border as well sort of no man's land and we we had the Norwegian army go past us one time and warn us about these these restrictions because the Russians have been known to uh, uh if you if you go past the border they'll they'll take you for a few days and ask you to pay some sort of money. Yeah, um, I'm they're, sure they're
0: very polite and nice, though, about it.
1: Of course, but I was very <laughs> about, um, the dog lead that is attached to my waist for Schnur um, becoming... Imagine if that had broken, then he'd gone off to the Russians. Oh, that'd be awful. Uh, <laughs> but you know, this little boy, Schnur, he, um, he would cry every night and he'd be in um, um, But... He his speed that he would build on this on the border. So you you ski a lot on the on the lake that is going across the border, um, and because it was very very cold, it would become very icy. But that was meant you know, Schneur was in this element, and it meant that he would sprint. And I mean, I've never done polking, so polking is when you pull a sled behind you, and usually it's quite a lot of hard work and effort. But <laughs> he was just pulling me, and I was basically skiing, balancing myself on the flat with the polk. Um, it was quite an experience. Um, but we, we did this, this trip and a few months later Liv who I was meant to be doing it with called me up and she said, you know when I was feeling a little bit um, sick and you know wasn't quite as strong as I thought, oh I was actually pregnant. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> <Huh. laughs> oh. um, Liv, the um, um, wonder, wonder woman that she is, she's such an amazing woman she'd been skiing with a polk, so with a sled on her stomach, and in the freezing cold, <laughs> little did she you know, she was, you know, about to, about to have a baby. <laughs>
0: oh, fair play to her.
1: Fair play. And then I, I also, of course, got to find out how lovely Schnauzer was, so it worked out for the best.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So last question before some wrap-up ones. You have achieved so much already in your career, which time-wise I would say has only just begun. You have mountaineered into tajikistan and Argentina. You've pulled sleds across the Arctic and grizzed out the jungle into territories unknown. Thinking back all the way to your first expedition in Svalbard at 18 years old, what lessons have you learned since then that have stuck with you today?
1: I, want to, I feel like I want to get this right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, if you give yourself time to really pay attention on who you are and what you love, then you can't go too much right wrong um Svalbard on my first expedition gave me that and to be honest I because I was so happy then and I really figured out where I was happiest I haven't deterred too much from that um and I saw very early on from being on that expedition something that I wanted to do professionally and I wanted to just keep seeing the world so I think if we can all just listen to ourselves more um that's the most important thing and I think keep bettering ourselves because um, we'll always be you know you've only got yourself to thank at the end of the day and be selfish if you have to. Um, because sometimes we worry about what people think too much and there's no there's not enough time in life for that. so just do it um, and also if, if you can think of it, then you can do it. so you know, I, I often think of something before I have no clue, but if, if you can think of it, then it's never impossible.
0: Perfect. So let's get into some wrap-up questions then, uh, and, and tie tie the day off. So, what are three non-negotiable songs playing on your way out to an expedition?
1: My way out. Okay, All right. I'm, I'm sorry. So you you're I'm getting
0: gonna... in the zone. You're getting in the mindset.
1: Okay, I'm getting my phone. Uh, the first one would be "Dog Days Are Over" by Florence and the Machine. Nice. <laughs> um which is
0: which is ironic if you're going out to have a husky pull your sled
1: (laughs) yeah that is is cute um what have we got ah um there will be time mumford and sons nice that's a fantastic song um and that makes me think that good things are about to come and then we've also got oh stop playing them now there's There's a fantastic composer called Dexter Britton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, the name
0: rings a bell, but my brother's doing a PhD in composing, so it might have been something I've heard him say. <laughs> so
1: he's got a great song called "Time to Run," and that's very—it builds up and it makes you feel like, you know, you're very small in the world, but also very important. And so when you're about to do that, it 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 makes you, you uh, walk with a straighter back and feel confident. Yeah.
0: Important. Oh, for sure. I like them. Good, good choices. So, from the Arctic mountains of Svalbard and Finsmarkvilla to the jungle of the Amazon and the Kanuka Mountains, what is the most beautiful place you've been to?
1: Can I say... I find something. there's something so idyllic about Denali in Alaska, um, which is very much like Svalbard, in a sense, because I love um, mountains that just come out of snow. And it's almost like being in the clouds. And sometimes you are in the clouds and they'll just appear out of the clouds. But there's something beautiful about that pristine snow that you just can't replicate. Um, and it's something that is just so astounding that it, it exists in the world. Um, but I also have to say the high sierras in California. are um, just absolutely astounding. So the weather, John, John Muir is or new trail goes through and things but when you go in the winter and you were going ski mountaineering you've just got those beautiful lakes with the with the trees with the mountains and just all of those together just make for that sort of fairy tale wilderness that really comes comes alive and when you read those storybooks about adventure
0: perfect (laughs) so We've already mentioned it a couple of times, but at the time of recording, we are all in quarantine due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this got me thinking, you have the world to yourself. You have transport and kits to get you to one place. Where are you going and why? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: God. one place. Um, you know, uh, this, this there's a place in Scotland that as a kid I kept I kept going every year after year, and that was very much the making of me and it's a place where there's the lock there's the rocks that you can play on and jump from and then as well as that you've got the lovely forests and the mountains and Scotland is just beautiful and it has everything so I think if I had to choose one place it would be it would be that
0: perfect perfect <laughs> and the last question I've got really so as I've said couple of times already you really have had such an incredible career so far with such a varied background and experience in this time so far since you first fell in love with it all what is one moment you would relive
1: um there was a moment in the high tierra last year uh, where we almost thought that the whole trip was going to be off and we thought we were having to go and a and figure another way out because it was all too dangerous and that would mean a week or two weeks trekking without food but we were going to have to just leave it all because we were just stuck um we were going to find a completely new route but then something we just were so lucky we just spotted another way out and we thought we all spotted it was three of us and we thought maybe that's it maybe we can do this and we you know this was at a point where we were heads down skiing oh damn it you know we failed Going to be a hard slog out, and we saw this, and we thought, okay, let's leave early in the morning tomorrow, dawn. Um, it's going to be dangerous, it's going to be you know, we hit and miss, we have to retreat if we have to. Um, but we plowed through, we did it, the snow packed within our favor, climbed up this mountain, basically like a whole barrier that was going on, that was causing a barrier for the whole route. And we finally got to the top just as the sun was getting the heat and it was, the conditions were getting um, sketchy again. But we got to the top just in time. And that feeling of um, teamwork and just thankful to be there, to have done it, it felt like we'd just climbed Everest. It felt incredible because the trip was suddenly back on. We'd just done something that we didn't you know it was, oh, it was just magical. So I think that moment um, with my best friends, you know,
0: that's perfect. That's such an amazing moment to finish on as well. And listen, if that got you as the listeners enticed at all, then, like I say, we discussed the high C areas in a further episode, so make sure you're you're subscribed or following or just occasionally see my annoying updates and you'll uh, you'll see it come out. But that's incredible. What an idyllic and picturesque moment, I think.
1: Uh, it's funny, yeah. Uh, you wouldn't think that there's so much adventures to have in...
0: You know America, but there really is, yeah. Well, listen, Lucy, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, it has really been my pleasure, and uh, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one.
1: Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> so, that's that. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly did. Every single one of these is such a pleasure to do, and it was fantastic to, to find out a bit more about Lucy and the thoughts that she's got. And, the plans the preparation the stories that she has to tell so thank you again for coming on to the podcast and certainly by all means check out her website in the show notes it's well worth having a look at everything else she's done and her blogs but if you enjoyed it please consider subscribing and following tell a friend if you'd like to Uh, spread the love grow the podcast and i'll see you in the next one